Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cavalry Audio. My name is Cade Courtley, and this is Can You Survive This Podcast. The show is designed to teach you techniques that will increase your chances of survival in any life-threatening disaster scenario imaginable. Join me each week as I challenge my guests to see if they have what it takes to get out alive. Knowledge is power, people. Can you survive this podcast? My fellow survivors, if you can hear the sound of my voice, it means you are still alive and it continues to be my mission to keep it that way. Welcome to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast. I'm your host, Cade Courtley. Today, another amazing guest. I'll keep this short. An author, a TV personality, but most importantly, a fighter. A fighter for those whose voices aren't heard. She's pretty much committed her entire life to making sure those voices are heard in a very selfless way of helping these people out. <laughs> Folks, please welcome the amazing Aaron Brockovich to the show. Aaron, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Kate? It's really nice to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. I have an incredible respect for those who fight for those who can't. Where did that come from? Was it the way you were raised? Did you develop it? A combination of all of that personal experiences? Because I have nothing but respect for that. Combination of all of that. And I didn't always see these things until I got older in my life and started having a family and a children and, and began my work in Hinkley. I grew up in Kansas and I had two amazing parents. My dad was in the Navy, a football star at KU, yeah. fighter, fighter pilot. And I'm a military mom and we can talk about that later. But my mom and my dad, they just were these just down to earth, real people. My dad always taught me the greatest gifts we have is our family and our health and how we can deteriorate that system through a lie or deception. And it disrupts our respect and our trust for one another. That was ingrained in me as a child. And my mom was a journalist and just had this most positive nature in life. And I had a really good upbringing. And my parents' biggest struggle was my biggest struggle. And at the time, it wasn't diagnosed as dyslexia, but definitely a learning disability. And so throughout my years, and to answer your questions, you know, your parents, something that happened, how do I support others? Because for a huge bulk of my life, I was always perceived as the underdog. And because I was different, I was labeled, or I didn't learn like everyone else, or it became too difficult for a teacher to understand me. And my mom and dad saved me. They didn't want me to slide through the cracks. They knew I knew, they knew I could learn, they knew I was smart. And my mom is the first one that taught me to have stick tuitiveness. And I really never knew what that meant. I thought it was a Kansas slang word, like, you know, <laughs> cattywampus or slaunch wise. I'm like, what the hell is this word? And I challenged her on it one day, and she got the Webster's Dictionary and read me the definition, noun, propensity to follow through in a determined manner, dogged persistence born of obligation and stubbornness. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I understand that. Stubborn is my middle name. I am determined. I am dogged. And she wanted me to learn to keep pushing through. If you want to get to the other side, you got to push through it, right? You got to go through it. So she and my dad were instrumental in working with me and keeping my self-esteem intact. And I don't know that I realized until I was older in life and started my work in Hinkley that the labeling, the perception, the judgments, I didn't fit nicely in the box. Therefore, I needed to be over here was motivating and pushing me really into who I have become today. And my mom always teaching me that 
just because you're different doesn't mean you're inferior and not to lose that self-esteem. I had a high school teacher that caught me that didn't push me through the standard conformance, if you will, of sitting there and taking a test. She knew I knew. She learned that I listened. She learned that I was visual and she allowed me to take all my tests orally. And I ended up getting an A plus in the class on every test, every semester. What that did for my GPA was one thing. What it did for my self-esteem was another. And I began to really understand my dad's lesson. My dad was an engineer. He ran pipelines for CityCo. He retired from the United States government, Department of Transportation. He used to sing me songs about water. And the very basic principle that I was old enough to understand was that if he and I and my mother and family couldn't have this transparent communication and build that honesty and respect for each other, then we were going to lose everything. And I never forgot that. And then when I started having children of my own, I started to get it more. And then when I really began my work and basically stumbled on Hinkley, I saw, oh my gosh, whatever I was experiencing about deceptions and loss of respect and the basic principle and value of water and land and health, all of that was being taken away from these people. And I started to work at an instinctual level, which is what I definitely knew to do. And I saw two-headed frogs. I saw green waters. I felt that suppression or oppression or gaslighting these people to get them to shut up, to think what was happening wasn't real. And I just kind of exploded from there. And I know that was a long response to your question. No, but (laughs) I mean, there's so much great stuff in there. Let me unpack a few of these things. I can completely relate to, you had a learning disorder. I was a late bloomer. So I was the skinniest, the smallest growing up. And I didn't realize as frustrating as that was at the time, it put a chip on my shoulder that would pay off a hundredfold later in life when I decided I'm going to go try something extremely difficult. And because of that chip on my shoulder and that tenacity from the younger age, it just accelerated me through that process. Yeah. We don't always see that at the time. Absolutely not. But looking back, I could not be more grateful. It's just, okay, we had to endure challenges at an earlier age than most of our peers, but it made us, I think, I can speak for myself, it really was helpful down the road for me. It is. And innately, I would pick up on my own common sense set of skills, which I think is invaluable. And we, we discredit that often enough. And I tell people, use common sense, you'll logically do the right thing. Yeah. And I could have picked up on stuff instinctually, but also my mom and just that word stick to that got into my head that dogged, determined, stubborn, persistent behavior. And frankly, I think most of us are that, but we question ourselves. I do a lot of keynote speaking and I often talk about logic, leverage, loyalty, and love, my program RAM. And many times we stand in our own way. And for me, a lot of it's been a process of getting out of my own way, meaning that voice in your head, you can't do this. I mean, everybody told me in Hinckley, not a doctor, you're not a lawyer, you're not a scientist. Why should we listen to you? Why do you know anything? And I was so struck by that. I'm like, I don't have to be any of that to be a human. And I don't have to be any of that to give myself permission to say, I'm cutting this noise out. I see something that is not right. And I'm going to push through that. And I think that that's really important. We often doubt ourselves. And I feel that I grew up doubting myself because of this disability. And in hindsight, that disability was my gift. So it's hard for us to look inward and to ourselves because that's where you will open up and flourish if you can just keep pushing through that moment that you think you're not going to get through. I think we are there again today, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, if, if there's ever a space for not quitting, it's right now. I can't wait to get into Hinkley, but uh, before we do, it sounds like you had parents that instilled core values into you at an early age. And I hate to say it, but if you go ask a millennial on the street, hey, what are your core values? Not only do they not have them, most of them, but don't understand what the concept of a core value is. (laughs) 
Well, it's very true. They're they're an interesting generation for sure. I think they're obviously into the, the social media, the computers, the tech and all of that, which is one thing, but I think in a way disconnected them. And I worry about that. For me, that grounding is this environment. It is those principal core values. You know, I ask people in my RAM program, which is realize, assess, and motivate oneself. And the A is for assessment. And take stock, not in what you have, but in who you are. And that is character. That is courage. That is value. That is respect of yourself, of another, of the environment. So I think because their brains were in all of this, and my family, most people of that generation, you and I, we were out in it. You know, I'm a soldier on the ground. I'm a foot soldier on the ground. And for me, there's nothing better than being in it, on it, a part of it, feeling it, experiencing it, the environment, looking at it, observations, all of that. And somehow they may have been disconnected from that because they are a generation that got into the whole tech thing. They're inside, they're doing this. And that's an interesting observation that you just said. And that's been part of my job for the past 20 years. It's like, oh my God, how have we become so disconnected from this? And I think if we continue to get further and further disconnected from it, I think we will continue to see more and more of the issues that are facing us today and how... I feel so much of my work in the future will be getting information out, inspiration, empowerment, knowledge. How can I get you to reconnect to yourself? And for me, myself has always been connected to those very core values in this environment. I mean, just listening to you for the last couple of minutes, you still have every bit of fire in you. I love it. Don't (laughs) let it go. I mean, passion can move mountains. Especially just on an individual basis. We're going to back up a little bit, but you were involved in a very serious automobile accident when you were younger. I was. And that that probably was a fairly major turning point for your life. Explain that a little bit. I was pregnant at the time. Well, you know, here I was a single mom, two kids. I lived in Reno, Nevada, pregnant, divorced, got divorced, and then found out I was pregnant. And... I had no idea what was going to become of me, but I had a car wreck when I was dropping one of the kids off at school and I got ram sighted and I ended up having a C5, C6 disectomy. And again, another struggle, you know, you just do what you have to do at the time. And I just kept pushing through. I always hear my mom, you've got to have that stick-to-itiveness. My father about family values and that honor and that respect and was stuck in me and being there for my kids and it helped me get through the whole C5, C6 disectomy. It was a 10-hour surgery. I was terrified. But all of that, I think, brought me to a greater understanding, again, and appreciation for life, for my family. And I don't know, sometimes you just, you have to breathe, you have to believe, and you have to know to get to the other side. If you're in a room, right, and you want to get to the other side, you got to walk through the door. (laughs) And so as uncomfortable as it is, and I've learned this again recently when I was doing the audio for my book, wow, what a different experience and quite taxing. It's one thing to read something, but when you say it out loud, whether it's pronunciation, missing an S, a T, the information, I went into that data overload and I realized it hurts. It hurts to see it or live it and say it, but you have to push through to that to get to the place of understanding it. And when you do, there's this moment of reckoning and you will activate. We're so afraid to go through that. You have to. I mean, I tell people, I spent the opening part of my book talking about a survival mindset. And you can't just have all the food buried in your basement and checklists. If you don't have it up here and getting up there is physical toughness and mental toughness, and it's hard to stay tough. So if you're pushing little comfort zones every day, not only are you staying on that wave, but you're ahead of it and it's going to serve you better. And it kind of sucks at the time. I give a really basic example. You're going to go to the grocery store. Don't get the closest parking spot. 
park far away because it's that much further that you walk today that you weren't planning on walking. It's real basic, but those little things build up and I'll admit it as I'm getting older, it's harder to stay hard, but it's important with the world we're living in. (laughs) It is. And you know, I, I I don't know how much I'm allowed to cuss, but last away, let's go ahead and do it now. Fuck shit. Okay. There we go. That's right. That's exactly what I do. I'm like, fuck this, fuck that, fuck you. I'm fucking doing it. Perfect. He's like, That's the trailer. <laughs> you just got to get into that warrior mode. And it is difficult. And it is difficult as we get older. Listen, I'm 60 now with four grandchildren. And it just, I allow myself to be vulnerable and okay. It's okay to be different. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be scared. And I allow myself that moment to get into my head, my heart, and my courage, my gut, and line it all up and just realize I've got to do this. I can do it. It's for the betterment of myself, my family, me. And it's just like, I just say, fuck it. And I just do it because I could sit around and analyze it long enough and decide not to do it. I could talk myself out of anything. (laughs) So it all comes from within you. And I worry so much. Seven years ago, I was, I'm so tired on the environmental front. This this is nothing I've ever done alone, nor can I continue to do alone. And I just felt not defeated, but really tired. And I was there when my granddaughter, my first granddaughter was born. Oh my gosh. Just, oh my gosh. And the minute she came out and I was right there, I'm like, oh my God, I'm in like this legacy phase I must continue my work. What would I be leaving for her? And I became reinvigorated again. And I think that we just get so hard on ourselves that we give up. And it's really becomes a mindset and a mantra and stick-to-itiveness and a legacy and life and the respect of it and the appreciation of it. And you must, I think when my brother Tommy died, what a tragedy for the family. He was an asthmatic. He died on a camping trip. And I remember sitting in the front row of the pew with my family and I was shaking so bad. I was moving the pew and my dad put his hand on my knee and I said, I can't, I can't do this. I I just couldn't even catch my breath. I said, I can't do this dad. And he very gently just put his hand there and I could feel this affirmative energy. And he says, Aaron, you have to, you have to go on for you, for your mom, for me, for your children. And it just reverberated in my head. You have to. And there's these moments in my life, even standing in Hinkley, you have to go on. And it's not of just self. It's for the entire good of the family, for the environment, for others, and that service of duty. And when you can give back that way, it takes you out of yourself and you realize what you have to do. Well, it's amazing. I know there are people listening to us that are probably like, if she could bottle that. But folks, it's not a mystery. You find what you're passionate about. You find what's important to you, like family. And then you just go through the door. You commit. Yeah. (laughs) it's like nike just do it just do it um aaron so you were involved in the car crash i want to make sure i've got this right then you went and hired a law firm to represent you is that the law firm that you ended up going to work for what's with the with the whole hinkley thing because i guess where i'm going is do you believe in fate do you believe in destiny do you believe in i you know luck maybe a combination that ended up your path where you were and it started by getting T-boned in an intersection. Yeah. No, I'm thinking about what you've asked me and you got to trust. You know, I learned this from my mom, the universe, and there's no way Hinkley would have happened or destiny. It's always like that show sliding films. If you go one way, it could happen this way. Sliding doors. Have you seen that film? I love no, that but we're going to play a game later. That's a lot like that. As far as choices, oh. you get to make life or death decisions. So we'll have fun oh with that in a minute. Gosh. Don't know if I want to play that game. Oh, Is that you're... what you call this? Can you survive this podcast? Yeah, you're going <laughs> to love it too. You'll love it. It's it's pretty nasty, but we'll get to it in a little bit. So I think I've learned the universe has you or us right now 
exactly where we're supposed to be. We may not understand that. We will down the road. But right now, I will take comfort in, for whatever reason, I'm meant to be in this place, in this position right now. And that car crash was a part of getting me there. All of this, speaking with you today, is a part of where we move next. Um, We're supposed to be here today. And I absolutely believe that because otherwise, I will implode in my mind trying to figure it out or no one's going to come save us, fix us, do it for us. I have to. And that gives me comfort. I'm meant to be in this space right at this very moment. I may not know exactly what it means, but it's part of the journey. It's part of a process. And yes, I do believe that the universe, it's, it's so magnificent. There's so much we don't know. And I just believe in it and the environment. And we're meant to be right where we are, every one of us, right this moment, may not have a logical explanation for it. So you can call that faith. Destiny, maybe. I think it's a combination of a lot. But I do know that I'll drive myself crazy if I question everything. And I happen to be like an empath, and I can feel things. If you talk to people I work with, they'll tell you, (laughs) oh, she's scary. I'm serious. And I even feel like crazy. I said that to someone this morning where it's like, oh my gosh, I see dead people, right? Because (laughs) it's an energy and you feel it, you know it, we question it. It's guttural, it's visceral, it's in your body. And I can walk in a room that's got a hundred archive boxes and everyone's searching for a document. I'm not kidding you. I'm almost afraid to even say it. I will sit there and I can feel and I can tell you where it is. I've done the same thing out in Hawaii. We were involved in a big DBCP contamination in a 9,000-acre plantation pineapple field. And everybody and experts could not find the well. I'm not kidding you. I went out there and I stopped and I connected. And I'm like, it's right over there. And it was. That's amazing. Buried way back in the field. So that's why I am the way I am. And I know it sounds weird and it's like, oh, dee, 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 here we go, weirdness. We are energy. If you will stop enough to even notice and feel it, you'll figure it out. You went from being a client of a law firm from a car crash to working for the law firm. Oh, I don't mean to interrupt you, but no. I want to go back and answer your question no, about that. Yes, what happened was I had come down to L. Play prior. And when I was here, I met the biker dude, George. And it was George that came back to Reno and helped me move from there to here because my two older kids' father was down in this area. And it is through George that I met Ed Masary for my car crash accident. And well, the rest is history. <laughs> I mean, that's just it. The one more layer of connect the dots that ended up putting you right here it's it's yeah if you think about it too much it'll kind of make you nuts but you really I know right? I mean half of it is okay this is the path and then I think the other half what am I doing with these incredible events am I going to quit or keep fighting and just the combination of the two and look at you now it's really awesome so that, but I didn't mean to cut you off but you would ask me that and sometimes I'll go off this way you have to pull me back but. oh that's all right it's it's all good it's this is great so you find yourself working with Ed Masary at a law firm, and you started with Hinckley. And it, anybody who's unfamiliar with it, you shouldn't be. The movie Aaron Brockovich, nominated for, I believe, five Academy Awards, a great movie based on your story in Hinckley, where you started finding medical records that would explode into the largest direct action lawsuit in United States wow. history with Pacific Gas and Electric and how they were contaminating the water for, I believe, over 30 years in the Hinckley area. Yeah, PG&E gets into a lot of trouble, but yes. Now, was this, at what point were you like, this is my calling or the fire got lit? Was it early on? You're like, because you've already talked about sort of your core values and helping others. Was this just, okay, this is a perfect fit for where I am in my life right now? That was the perfect storm. Hinkley became the perfect storm. When I went out to Hinkley, I recognized the gaslight, and I can't think of another word to use, but they saw changes in the environment. They knew they were sick. They knew the chickens had two heads. 
They knew that all the trees were dying. They knew that all the cows were covered with tumors. But anytime they said that to anybody, they were told, you're crazy. You can't believe what you see, right? And when I got out there, I swirled in that storm. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I've been here before. That's called my life. Everybody told me, oh, you can't read. You're not going to be a doctor. You can't do this. You can't do that. Really? Watch me. So I became instantly connected and understood their frustration in not being heard or not being seen or being told you're crazy. So as I started to see it all, I could hear, and I played it over and over again, my mom and my dad, and this stick to and respect and the environment. And so then all of a sudden, I almost went into autopilot and that became my calling. I couldn't help myself. And these people helped me as I helped them. We helped lift each other up. We began to believe and know, wait a minute, this is what's going on and I see it and it's happening. And I'm just not going to let anyone knock me off that. So the perfect storm came together in Hinkley, California. And again, I said earlier, are you there? I'm still here. Oh, uh, we got that. We yeah, got sorry. you back. Because I'm in my little makeshift Oh, no problem. Well, let's just press on. This is great. Thank you. I can't it's believe all... you said that. You just said press on. My dad, the slogan, press on. Military stuff. Yep. Is in every nook and cranny and purse and wallet that I have. Omnipotence. <laughs> I mean that persistence, that dog of persistence. Press on. I cannot believe you just said that to me. <laughs> It's just a never, it's a never quit way to live. It is. And that's what happened in Hinkley, right to our conversation. And you just said it, press on. And here I am today. I don't think when I did Hinkley, I had any idea that what I was getting into was going to be a representation of not only these issues in America, but globally. Well, I, I love the part you talk about. You had gotten exhausted. And then you mm-hmm. saw your grandchild born and that recharge and the energy that you undoubtedly have. I love it. It's inspiring. What keeps you going? Is it family? Is it doing the right thing? Or is it just your DNA? This is, this is who I am. I'm a fighter. I need to press on. It is who I am. And for me, it's been what keeps me going is, you know, my children are, we've been through a lot. You know, I'm a military mom to United States Army. My son was in Afghanistan. Awesome. Awesome. Proud, proud right, mom. Right there with you. And my youngest was military police. And it was rough with my son coming home from Afghanistan. And, you know, as a parent, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And you want your children to be happy. And the struggles, we went through a lot with my youngest in the military, Matthew in Afghanistan, these ups and downs. And I always find inspiration from my children, but I also know I need to be there for them. But what I learned is that when I get that exhausted, I have to be there for me. And it's almost, I have to embrace myself because you cry, there's tragedy, there's traumas, you feel weak, you feel vulnerable. And instead of hating yourself for that, loving yourself for that, because that's what makes you you. And I don't lose that passion, but also be forgiving and tolerant of your own quirks or things that annoy you and embrace those. And so it was when I took that moment where I felt so tired, the energy of life reinvigorated me again and gave me that moment to reconnect with myself as well. And that's what I have to really keep intact. And she has to say, because my kids are all gone and grown now. They have their own lives. I feel like cats in the cradle. You know, they grew up just like me (laughs) and and I'm divorced again. Oh my God. And so here I am (laughs) at 60 and I'm like, I got to be okay with me and embrace that. And I worry about so many people and I'm in these communities and it's that, how do we help them again, feel good about themselves? And that's a journey they have to do. And when they realize 
No one's going to come fix and change that other than you. And this is where I talk about my programs. What's logic? It's your common sense. Follow your gut. We have one. It's instinctual. Listen to it. And I share with people on a very basic level. I grew up in Kansas. Okay. I could be outside playing. I could tell you the sky's getting dark. I could tell you the air is getting oppressive. I could feel it. Uh, we're probably under some tornado watch. And the tornado sirens go off. My common sense set of skills told me to run, not stop and call the weather channel and ask if it was an F4 or an F5. Run, go to safety. And that's why I said earlier, if you follow that common sense, which we're taught really not to believe in, I think, or listen to, or it isn't real, go with that. Logic, leverage, join your community. You know, don't isolate yourself away. And I saw that in Hinkley. It was when one had the same story and another and another and another and another. And we realized we're not that different and that you join that collective force. You have an even stronger voice, logic, leverage, loyalty. Stay true to your cause. You know, we embark on journeys and at the first moment it doesn't go right. What we abandon ship. Nope. You get involved in that cause. You see it through to the end. And I have met more people in these communities. They don't care if it's one year or five, seven or 10. They're there in it to the end. Logic, leverage, loyalty, and ultimately, what's your why? Why in the hell do we get up every day? This is one crazy ass world, don't you think? Oh, yeah. And the negativity and the hatred, and it just goes on and on and on. We get up every day because we love life. We love our family. We love our jobs. We love the environment. We love sending our kids to college. We love being at that wedding. It's love, which is this incredible energy. And then I mostly teach, you know, realize, assess, and motivate oneself. Realize who you are. Assess who you are. And here's the thing. If you don't like something about yourself, who cares? It's like remodeling a house. You know, if your appraisal of yourself is low, remodel something. Go back to school. Go play a, a round of golf and become that golfer you want. You can do that. You just have to realize it. Assess, not what you have, who you are. Identify yourself, not with what you have. Who are you? What is that courage? What is that character? What is that love? You know it's there and embrace it. And mostly at the end, M is about the motivation. And we live in a crazy world and it's spinning faster and faster. And I'm telling you, there's days I'm thinking, oof, I'm going to lose it. And here's the secret. You have to disconnect and refuel and reboot. It's like a computer. When you get a lot of data coming in at once, what do we get? The blue dot up there that just goes around and around <laughs> and around and around. Like, hurry up. Spinning. And get in that space where you can hear yourself think. You can feel your own heartbeat. You can connect to that internal self. It's guttural. And reboot. And when you do, you'll find that motivation and that passion to come out and press on and do it again tomorrow. Aaron, can you imagine if everybody was required to do one thing a day for somebody else? It's so basic. Can you imagine the tidal wave effect that would have in our country? Absolutely. And we've talked about that in the environmental place. Everyone's saying, how can I do one thing to make any difference? Well, imagine if you did one thing and just teaching your child on plastic bottles and recycling and that every single person on your street did that. And then every single person in your city did that. And then every single person in your state did that. Now we're not talking this gone from that's where I talk about in leverage. One plus one equals two. But in principle, one plus one can be a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, and more. Then you can solve some of the problems. So, yes, it can stop with one drop of water, one person planting one seed, and it can populate. And it would make a huge difference. Well, it becomes contagious too, which is great. It is contagious. And it would be a solution to a lot of issues. We can't possibly expect and wait for some agency to come fix it. But if we all join together, it becomes a solution as well. And even for a couple minutes a day, if you get out of your head and your problems because you're thinking about helping somebody else, it just, again, it's a very basic concept, but instead you're going to do selfies and talk about your omelet. All right. (laughs) 
It's like, come on, folks, help each other out. It's true. And what I try to do is I want people to know when you get to that moment, that's the moment of self-renewal. That's the reboot. And I don't care what you do, but go outside, feel the warmth of the sun, take a walk on the beach, listen to the sound of the waves, the chirping of the birds, the beauty of life around you, the experience of a child as they laugh, as they play, all of that. See, the world is speaking to you. If you can just stop for a moment, take the time to listen. And when you do, you'll hear yourself, you'll find yourself, and you'll come out kicking and screaming tomorrow. Fuck this. I'm doing it. Put your phone in your pocket for 10 minutes. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, and this drives my kids crazy. My phone's ringing. They're like, you're going to answer that? I'm like, no, I'm not. They're like, ah, they can't, they just can't deal with it. I can let the thing ring all day long. Love it. I can only imagine when the film came out, it, I'm, I'm quite sure it changed your life. What was your experience with that? Positive, negative? Overwhelming. Lo- overwhelmingly overwhelming. positive or just overwhelming? It wasn't negative, overwhelming. It was overwhelming. I remember going to the theater by myself. Nobody knew who I was. And after the movie was over, watching audiences, standing ovations in a theater. Yeah. And Hinkley wasn't, isn't, and never was about me. It's about all of us. And listening to people going, oh my gosh, I wonder if that could be me. That is me. Wow, she had some balls. Well, I could do that too. And that's precisely what we all got it. And that made me really happy. And I wasn't prepared that there would be a hundred thousand other Hinkleys or more. I wasn't prepared for, I mean, the film could have been a flop. Uh, I wasn't prepared that they would name it after me. Uh, That kind of threw me off. And and it's kind of, you know, because now it's in your face. It's my name and who I am. And I'm recognized more for the name, the film. They get it. They saw it, but they don't always see or recognize me. Right. And just the amount of work, the idea that this had been going on everywhere was pretty overwhelming and still is. Well, let me ask you that. 20 years down the road here. If you had to put a number on a percentage of the United States that has contaminated water, what what kind of number would you say you would put on that? Really? Wow. Every state in the United States, I could tell you right now where like hexavalent chromium problems exist throughout the United States, but in Italy and France and Greece and South Africa, I mean, Australia, it's global. It's a global chemical. And within every state, multiple towns, multiple cities across the entire United States has Superfund sites, has groundwater contamination, has soil vapor intrusion, has air pollution issues from huge releases and mishaps every single state. And what would be your recommendation if somebody's like, I don't know if my water is safe? I always tell them you can start email me. You can start with your municipal water system. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, oftentimes we don't because someone else is going to think, what are you doing? What are you saying? Don't be stupid. Ask questions. Use your common sense. Observation. I can't tell you every single day, every day. I guarantee you there'll be one to three today of people sending me pictures of their tap water. It's yellow. It's orange. It's brown. It's green. It's got oil in it. It's got sediment in it. They're lighting it on fire. I'm like, what is it you're missing? (laughs) They know. They know. And what I've learned through the book, through my community and on the ground is I think people are asking for permission. You know, we grew up, you remember in class, you raise your hand, I need permission to go to the restroom. What I think they're really asking for is support. And when you get that support, they oftentimes rise. And so if you're calling me for permission and you need me to support you that, yeah, that's brown water. Yeah, I'd be concerned. Yeah, I'll make that phone call. And I'm the gal for you to call because I'm going to support you in believing in what you see, what you're experiencing, because I'm not there. You are. And the direction you need to go to begin to find answers. First thing is when you see brown, black water coming out, don't drink the water. (laughs) 
It's happening everywhere. That's why the book is about the national water crisis and what we, the people, can do about it. Stop looking for the hero and become it. Well, I want to get into that now. That's a perfect segue. Talk to me about Superman's not coming. Yeah, that's so disappointing. You know, it's the kind of... I've had to learn the Cinderella story and the <laughs> Prince Charming. <laughs> <laughs> Prince Charming's not coming. Dang. Well, I got to get over that one. Everything who we became as a society today was all good and well. And society today has to see going forward. There isn't going to be one agency, federal, state, or local, that's going to come in and fix your problems. And that we don't, in many instances, always need that because we're here. And this is everything we've been talking about. When you're in your community and you see that contaminated water, you become that leader. You become that hero. Ask the questions. Ask the municipality. And I encourage people to get involved in local politics at city council level. Most people, if you've ever been to a city council meeting, there's no one there. They're in there talking to themselves. Yeah. And I could blame them for something, but why? Because oftentimes they might not know what's going on if we don't come in and tell them what's going on. And we talk about this in the book, even in Hannibal, Missouri, one of the ladies decided to run for city council. She did. She got a referendum out to the ballot, to the town to get rid of chloramines. They did. They're lead free now. You can do that. And so it's just going to begin with you taking some action. What about by the people, for the people, we the people? Have we gotten comfortable or complacent or bought the Kool-Aid? I don't know. Yeah. Someone's going to come save your ass. And when you have these problems, you need to look to yourself first to start asking those questions, to be a part of the solution and stop waiting for someone to come fix it. You can take that action. And sometimes people just need a tiny little push and then they get uh, their, then they, there, then they get their rear in gear. They do. And I'll tell you what, that 99.99% of the time now in communities, I will see men, but I'm going to tell you 99.99% of the time, it's usually one pissed off mother that's like, oh, hell no, hell no, hell no. <laughs> they, they are on the move. Oh my gosh. I got involved with a group of women on a medical device that went bad called Esure. And they came to me. And when I explained to them about preemption, which is a law a device goes through FDA and if they can show studies and it gets out onto the market. And basically, if you can't prove some kind of fraud, even if it kills 10,000 people, you're kind of shit out of luck in some instances. These group of women went, oh, hell to the no. And they became 50 strong, 500 strong, 5,000 strong, 20,000 strong, 30,000 strong, 50,000 strong and growing on Facebook. They self-funded themselves and they rotated in and out of D.C. Every week, every month, all year long. One group got tired. They went home. The next group came in. They never stopped. Talk about stick to -itiveness. Let me tell you when there's 50,000 pissed off women, just stand down, stand <laughs> aside. They're coming on through. And they ultimately achieved their goal on this medical device. And it wasn't just about a lawsuit. The justice was bare corporation through their tenacity, their dogged persistence, that collectiveness and how they did it was amazing, but they got bare to remove the product from the world market because they did not want any other women to have to go through this. That is powerful. And that is motivation. And in these communities, every single place I go, even in Hinkley, California, Roberta Walker, there's that mom that's going to go, uh-uh, nope, don't buy it, don't believe it. And when they get inquisitive and they get empowered, I'm telling you, I am a cheerleader. I'm like, ooh, ooh, go. So push them back, push them back, way back. <laughs> They're there. They're there. Well, some people you just don't piss off in this world. Not a mom. <laughs> Amen to that. Okay. <laughs> I, I hinted at it earlier, Aaron, but we do something on the show. Oh, no. Called I don't want to play. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. It's hypothetical survival world. So okay. when we're done, you will still be alive. But let's see how you do in this hypothetical survival situation. So this is how it's going to go. I'm going to give you a scenario. 
and then we're going to go ahead and launch you into it. And as you go through this, kind of like the tunes you're in adventure books, you can choose, I'm going to do A or I'm going to do B. And if I tell you that's the right one, you get plus 10 points. If I say, well, that's probably not the best way, it's Wait, minus you're 10. You're a Navy SEAL, though. Wait, this is all about preparedness. I get this from my son. Mom, yeah, but <laughs> I know the level of fight and common sense in you. You're going to be able to cruise right through this thing. Okay. I have see. faith in you. I do. Okay. All right. So here we go, Aaron. This is your hypothetical survival world scenario. You are at the airport in Edmonton, Ontario. You are heading to a town hall speaking engagement, as well as you're going to look into some complaints about some water quality issues in a small community about 150 miles north of Edmonton. So you find yourself, it's fairly late in the evening, and you are boarding a 10-seat commuter plane, one of the little puddle jumpers. And you look around, and there are only two other people in addition to the pilot on the plane. So do you have any questions so far? You're getting on a 10-seat puddle jumper, heading to a small community about 150 miles north of Edmonton. And it's in the evening. Ready to roll? If I'm ready to roll. You want any response from where yet? Or No. I've been in this scenario too many times. And <laughs> if, if, if math reverse still alive today a very similar situation leaving montreal and going back over to new york i get on there there's only a few people so i can tend to be i'm constantly surveilling i'm always looking for my way out plan b what's my strategy and where i will go so i'm always maneuvering that way and i happen to notice the pilot (laughs) the pilot came out i'm like how old are you? He's like 19. I'm like, oh, fuck no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Next flight. Well, then you're I, set. I've been you... in those situations. I am a road warrior and I have no problem. If I sense that there is danger, I will get right off that plane. I will rent a car and I will drive that 150 miles, even in a blizzard. And I will get there and I've done it. If I sense danger. Okay. Well, here we go with your first option. You step onto the plane, you look around, where are you going to sit? Because you're one of the first people to get on the plane. You can sit up front or you can move to the back of the plane. This is your first survival decision. Over the wing. Okay. So that is actually toward the rear of the plane. Towards the back, the wing. The strongest place on the plane. So the the wing is. I'm going to give you that one as a plus 10 right out of the gate. So... Basically, they say there is upwards of a 40% higher survival rate for those who sit towards the rear or tail of the plane than those up towards the front for obvious impact reasons. So that is a good idea. So you're sitting in the back of the plane. You're about 45 minutes into this flight. You've got your laptop out. You're doing some work. Plane starts encountering turbulence. The pilot (laughs) comes over the radio. And basic says, make sure your seatbelts are tight, but you can hear the nervousness in his voice. Do you, A, continue to do your work, or B, start putting your stuff away? No, I put start putting my stuff away. I'm like that on all flights. I can't, at that point, I'm disengaged from my thinking process, and I'm now in two. Is there going to be emergency? How do I put things away? Try not to panic. Roll me the vodka down the aisle real <laughs> quick. <laughs> um, and this is an interesting conversation. I fly all the time, and I'm not the best flyer. But going out over the waters to Australia, at some point we're out there kind of alone. And I think, what the fuck, if there's an accident. But you said instinctually, I go into a cocoon. Earphones come off, TV goes off, computer goes in front of me, and I'm almost in an instinctual cocoon on preparedness. That's what I do. Nope, I don't keep working. And that is absolutely the right thing to do because folks, you talked earlier about situational awareness, preparation. Yep. Yep. If you're dealing with turbulence and a small plane and you can hear your pilot is nervous, put that stuff away. This is also a great opportunity. Yeah. Like you were saying, okay, where are my closest two exits? This is my plan. Mm -hmm. A, this is my plan. Mm -hmm. B another Mm -hmm. great opportunity. Roll down your sleeves. If you're wearing something that's flammable, some kind of a synthetic, let's get rid of that. Let's make sure shoes, boots or whatever are good and tight. 
and absolutely just start thinking about the situation yep. you're in. If it yep. ended up being a waste of time, okay, but it won't be for you because, again, that's two correct plus 20, because a few minutes later you hear brace for impact. <laughs> Never, ever a good sentence, but you do. And you have augured into the side of a mountain. Everything violently comes to a halt and you're still breathing. So do you stay put and try and assess your injuries? Or are you going to evacuate that plane immediately? It has come to a stop. You're going to see what's going well, again, on. So much situational awareness. At that point, I think serious instincts are kicking in. I'm going to smell for gas definitely going to look to see if I'm stuck in something. If I'm not stuck in something and I smell gas and I may have a broken leg, I'm going to get out to my nearest exit. Absolutely. Your next priority is to get the heck away from that plane filled with gas. And it basically, they say upwards of 30 people or 30% of the folks that survived the impact end up dying from flame, smoke, or any kind yep. of fuel. So yep. That's the first my, thing that I'm My next going. priority, I got to get the heck away from this crash site. Oh, yeah. So that's outstanding. You do. You go ahead and you travel about 200, 300 yards away, or I'm sorry, feet away, and you're feeling a pain and you look down and yes, you have a broken right arm. This is a compound fracture and it's bleeding pretty bad. So you're away from the wreckage and you can A, address the injury or B, try and head back to gather some items address your injury or start trying to gather some stuff? Well, my first thought is going to be, I wish my son was here and I maybe has, should listen to him more. <laughs> I would stabilize the injury first, even if I had to take a shirt off. Absolutely. And uh, I get back to people on this. It's like in a survival situation, your priority is I'm going to address the thing that can kill me first. And mm -hmm. so for this particular situation, you need to stop this bleeding. You need to try and yeah. control that thing before yeah. you try and do anything else because nothing else is higher on the priority list now that you have gotten to safety from the plane. Now I need to find out what's going on with this bleeding. So absolutely. Plus 40. Aaron, your perfect score so far. Keep it up. Stay in the fight. Okay, I'm going to Stay try. in the fight. Okay, so you do. You address the bleeding. You hear somebody yelling from the crash site. Are you going to run back toward that crash site or are you going to try and attempt to communicate with this person? find out where they are, what's going on, get some more information, or are you just going to blaze on in there back towards the crash site? Yeah, I'm going to communicate with them. I need them to know. My first thought would be if I've got somebody panicking, they're panicking because no one's there, I'm going to signal to them, I'm here, where are you, and establish that communication so I can actually find them. And then I would go in and I assess the situation if they're even speaking. You nailed it. You basically are assessing the situation from a safe distance. I need to find mm -hmm. out more intelligence about what is happening with this person. Okay, they're talking, so they're probably in pretty good shape. Where are you yep. at? What is your condition? Instead of, I'm heading back to this potential explosive crash scene. So yeah, yeah absolutely. Now I communicate with them and my first instinct is, I would know they're fearful because they feel alone. And I would establish you're not alone. I'm here, where are you? Because I think that helps that person come down maybe a notch. Yes. Then in a survival situation, it is a communication skill that you have to have because if somebody panics, it's like when someone's drowning, they, they can take down. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what first responders do. The first thing on their list when they come up on a scene is they need to assess the scene and see if there are any dangers so they don't add to the body count by themselves getting hurt and just rushing in. So you, mm -hmm. you nailed it, assess the scene, figure out what's going on, get more information, and then you have the opportunity to, okay, so you head to the site, you find this passenger, you see that their legs are pinned, all right? And basically, you're talking to them, they don't appear to have any other injuries, they're just complaining about their legs. Are you going to try and pull them out of the situation and worry about maybe further injuries, or are you going to leave them put? They always say, hey, you got to worry about a spinal injury and you can make it worse if you move them. But this person is sitting in a crash wreckage that is starting to smoke. Leave them in place. 
or try and remove them, but worry about continued or additional injuries. I would very, very feverishly, with smoke coming in, uh, finding a way to dislodge their legs. And I know you're not, I'd pick them up and I would get them out. Absolutely. And I mean, look, tough decision, but if the roles are reversed and you're like, okay, I didn't burn to death, but I don't use my legs anymore, or I just burned to death there, pull me the heck out of there and we'll deal with whatever might've additionally happened as a result. So yeah, it really is. How do you want to die? And yes, you go. And even with, (laughs) even, even with the broken arm, we're not going down in this place. Hell no. And and, uh, I've talked to guys who have suffered from burns and it just, it sounds like the worst possible way. I I mean, so so screw it. I rather, you know, I rather crawl around on my arms than, burned to death so plus yeah. 60 Aaron you got come on home stretch here all right <laughs> so you pull that passenger out you head back to the location where you set up shop all right you head back you see the pilot unresponsive and it looks like it would probably take a miracle to try and remove him so what do you do tough decision again Do you try and use the last few minutes that you're willing to make an effort to try and get that pilot who is unresponsive out? Or do you look around and gather everything you can in the area? You're going to try to get a pilot that is severely wedged in there and unresponsive out or try and gather as much stuff around the side as you can. You are seeing more smoke. Unresponsive with a pulse? Potentially. Yep. You know what? Potential pulse? Very labored breathing, very light pulse. Again, you have a broken arm and you're looking at a situation and you're wondering. I've already forgot. I've already forgotten. Ah, about well, yeah, you're, you're on you're on adrenaline right now. You're like, oh, I've got a left arm. <laughs> but you can only choose one. Try and get that pilot out of there or try and grab everything in the area you possibly can. That might help you out in this situation. I certainly try. If I find myself in it, now you're gauging time and smoke and other circumstances too. Yeah. And let's just say you maybe have another 30 seconds before this wreckage is filled with flames. Oh man. It's so hard to think I I would try to get this person out. I mean, we're kind of talking about the concept of, there's a few concepts here. There's triage, which anytime a first responder shows up, they're like, okay, I have a really good chance of saving that person. Unfortunately, that person's probably too far gone and they have to do this in a second by second decision. Which one can I use my energy on to try and save and which ones I'm just, if I try with them, I'm not gonna save. It's tough. So right now you're confronted with, I mean, do you try and save the pilot and potentially die in a fire or do you grab some equipment around that will potentially keep you and the other passenger alive? It's a tough one. It is. I'm probably going to do a little both. If I've got down to 30 seconds, I'm going to give 12 seconds of trying mm-hmm. to, if I can't stabilize the situation or get them out, I'm going to cut bait and I've got now 15 seconds and I'm going to grab and jump. Yeah. And you know what? I'm going to give you that one because you got to try. But at the end of the day, what could happen if you keep working to try and get this guy out? He's dead. You're dead. There's somebody there by themselves or you're able to get back to that other person that you pulled out and you have some equipment to try and help your situation. Yeah. So a tough one, tough one, but it's a tough world we're living in. All right, Aaron plus 70. Okay. So here you do. Am I getting out of this place? You're you're close. You're close and you're a perfect (laughs) score. So keep it up. Please stay in the fight. You get back to the other passenger and they're kind of a mess. All right. They're in shock and you have a decision between trying to go and find some water or trying to start a fire at your location. Try and go get water or try and start a fire at your location. Am I in snow? Because I have water to start a fire. You're not. It's actually this time of year. Let's say it's tonight. And so, no. Well, I need both. But in that moment and someone in shock, my inclination would be warmth to start a fire. Absolutely. And it's back to the what is going to kill me first. I need to address first. So you do have somebody in serious shock. That can be a terrible thing. Try and get them warmed up. The other thing that fire is going to do is it's going to let folks know where you're at. An amazing Uh signaling device because you'll have people up there looking for smoke. Yes. And it could help keep things that want to eat you away. This is also to a third example of why starting a fire is your best bet. Aaron, you have two more, two more. Okay. Stick with me here. 
All right. So things have gone from bad to worse. You've seen two days come and go. You haven't heard anything in the air. No signs of help. You don't even know if anybody knows you guys went down. So here's the decision. Among the things that you gathered at the crash site, you see a map that the pilot had. And he has everything drawn out as far as the course he did and this and that. And you are fairly certain based on the surrounding areas where you think you are, where you think you guys crashed based on how long you were flying and looking around. So you're like, okay, I think we're right here. So you look at the map to the west is a river about a mile away. To the north is a highway about 10 miles away. You've decided it's up to me. I'm going to have to go out and find help. Do you go west to the river a mile away or do you head north to the highway 10 miles away? No, my first instinct's going to go to the river. Okay, and that's great for a couple reasons. Number one, you are going to need water during this adventure. Number two, waterways almost always lead to or have some kind of population. Excellent. Aaron, <laughs> you've got one left for a perfect score. And you know what? <laughs> we don't, so don't we don't give out perfect scores on this show easy. All right. You're several hours into your hike and you hear a helicopter. Do you A try and find a clearing even though you're in very thick vegetation or b do you try your very best to start a fire as soon as possible you're going to try and find a clearing or you're going to get a fire going well this is for a perfect score aaron brockovich you can do it no i'm gonna have to go to a clearing i'm not gonna have enough time to build a fire okay is that your final answer Oh my gosh, my palms are sweating. I'm oh, no. not serious. You're in very heavily no, wooded I'm just area. Heavily wooded. Neither is going to work out in a timely fashion. I, I am going to look for a clearing. Okay. Something so I can be seen. So I can be seen. So I'm going to suggest a fire in this situation. And here's the reason ah. why. These guys, if they're I in the. No, it's okay, though. It's okay, though. If these guys are in the area, they are going to be doing sector sweeps. So they'll be in that area for quite a while. They're not going to hear you. There's a really good chance, unless they're right on top of you, they're not going to see see this. But if you can get a fire started, they will see smoke for miles and miles, and they will home in on that. That would be my suggestion. If you have a good argument for the opposite, I'm all ears. But you did amazing. Yeah, no, listen, we've had long enough conversation here. I'm I'm always happy to look at, oh, that was something valuable to learn that I might not have thought of. My instincts would tell me my first fire was still going. (laughs) That would have given me some comfort. Would be uh, along that water in that dense forest. I don't know that I will get a fire together fast enough if I don't see a clearing, and for me, like I told you, I kind of looked up, people don't see that we're talking together. If I've got an immediate space that's a clearing that I could jump at, I would, but I wouldn't either or. That's a situational thing. It really is too, it it really is. But the thing to remember with a fire, especially out in the woods like that, if you put some moist or green stuff on there, it is like a gigantic cape that you can see for miles. And the contrast between dark gray smoke and green trees is awesome. So it's really great. Yeah, it just takes time. It does, it does. And my kids will tell you that because they've been to survival school and literally to the point where your hands bleed (laughs) to get that fire going. So right or wrong, I've flubbed it here at the end. My initial instinct, though, if I had an immediate clearing, would be to make an effort to get up and jump and wave my hands. And if they passed, maybe at that point I'd come back in thinking build a fire sure a way to see me but that isn't something that happens and you know you can hit that rock together a lot before you can get well yeah and and look in the real world you could do both but unfortunately for hypothetical survival world dang it there's only one but you had it you have 80 points you did great that's 90 percent no that's a great score you did awesome aaron i can't thank you enough you are so inspiring don't 
ever quit that fight you've got in you. I love it. I wish more people had it. Honestly, I think it's amazing. I can't thank you enough for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss or anything you would like to you know, I tell the folks about? Thank, thank you to you. And I'm intrigued with you and an ex-Navy SEAL. And I mean, my gosh, if anyone's great at survival and dog persistence and tenacity and determination is you. And as a military mom, just to say thank you. And you're such an admiration for so many and such a representation of strength and kindness and being there for all of us. Well, thank you. That's so, thank you. It's uh, we could do this all day long. You've uh, you've helped so many people out. It's so awesome. You have kids out in the military, and I hope they're doing well, and uh, I hope they're safe. And hey, folks, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with friends, family, loved ones, coworkers, anyone you care about, because our continued mission is to save lives. So be a survivor, not a statistic, and be. Totally. Be sure to subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Watch us on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaron Brockovich, thank you again for your time. You're awesome. Nothing but respect. Thank you so much. Thank you. And so are you. I'm telling you, have me back. I want to play the game again. (laughs) We'll do that. We'll definitely do that. All right. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Be well. You too, Aaron. Thanks so much. Can You Survive This Podcast is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live from The Bunker in Denver, Colorado. Hosted by me, Kate Courtley. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Kate Courtley. Associate producer is Jeff Apple. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>